What's up, folks? On today's podcast, you're going to be hearing an interview I did with Rick Blangiardi, who is currently the mayor of Honolulu here in Hawaii. Now, the reason why I'm having him on the podcast is to me, when I was interviewing him, it really made me think like this guy is like in his 80s, but there's some kind of fiery passion that still propels him forward to keep doing what he's doing. Most people, I think they get to financial freedom or most people in our group, very unlike most people out there in the world, get to financial freedom pretty quickly. Most people want five to seven years, especially if they're already an accredited investor. We get them up to three, four million dollars net worth. At that point, they've reached an end game. Most people are frugal, right? So they have enough and they, they could probably live out the remainder of their days with a pretty healthy wine budget and travel budget to do what they want. Now, but what do you do after that? There's a handful of folks that I've come across that they've gotten to that net worth scale. They really want to take it to that next level. Take it to eight, eight figures, $10 million plus net worth. The reason behind that is just a little bit higher level wine budget, but they also want to make an impact and money is an amplifier of what you want to be doing. Or they want to have some sort of legacy or again, the word impact. So Rick Blangiardi is obviously somebody who personifies this. And when you listen to this interview, I, I want you to really pay attention to why does he do what he's doing? It's not for the money. It might be because of ego, it might be because of impact, but you know what? I think this heart is in the right place. And when you listen to this, these are the kind of the people that I like to surround myself with, right? Not the people who just work to their 62 and quit because that was supposedly their retirement age, but the people who ran through the finish line, even though they didn't need to keep working, but they're operating at such a high level, uh, high impact, and they're making a change. Might not be your thing, but I think once you get to yourself to a point where you're a few million dollars net worth, I think a lot of these higher portions of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs become something that a lot of people think about, at least something I'm thinking about personally these days too. One of the big goals, if you guys haven't checked out the mission, simplepassacastro.com slash mission, is to help folks like yourself to get out of the rat race by implementing, investing in good deals, that cash flow. Secondly, and do the right tax and legal strategies that the wealthy do that is very different than what average people do and also implement infinite banking as the third step. Three very simple things that I've found and developed the network around and built systems. And so we have all the e-courses Go to the website, check those out. A lot of this is in a firm, very consolidated, curated curriculum. And it's not that hard to get people to that point. This is something to think about once you get to that point that's going to become more of a parent. For now, you guys don't care potentially, but a lot of people that listen to this podcast are very high network. And that's why we have these types of interviews and these show topics. But if there's something else that you guys want to hear in the future, let me know. I was like for feedback, email at team at simplepassivecashflow.com. Check out the website too. We've been revamping it this year, simplepassivecashflow.com. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. This is Lane Kaloka. You guys probably recognize our guests here and you're probably thinking what the heck are we doing interviewing Rick Bangiardi but uh, here he is we're not going to really go into too much of the issues that are currently going on like we do on the simple passive casual podcast we get to know the people and whenever I'm going into deals working with partners 
we never know what's going to happen in the future. And therefore, I want to know the context of the person. We're going to get to know Rick a little bit better. And yeah, thanks for coming on, Rick. Really appreciate it. Welcome, Wayne. I know this is a little wild card in your schedule here, but yeah, let's see what we can do to make the most of it. And I hey. think we're reaching a, a bunch of folks like myself who typically don't vote and don't care. That's even new to me, to be honest with you, when you say something like that, because I've not been a career politician. I find it interesting generationally where people are at. And honestly, quite honestly, you would be, your generation, I would think would be the most active more because there's so much at stake. But I find that interesting. I don't know where the I don't care comes from, but because I would tell you in my short time now of making this decision, a lot to be said for who's in power and who has positions of authority. It sounds so, I don't, I'm not, I'm not that power monger, but you know what I'm saying? When you have the authority, you can make things happen. There's a lot of responsibility with that as well. Let's dive right into here. And this is the Han Solo moment question that made you think of Star Wars. So for yeah. those of you guys who haven't heard of this question before, it's Han Solo and his buddy Chewbacca from Star Wars cruising the galaxy as low-life smugglers and then cross paths with Luke and Leia and they went off on a little adventure. You probably have a few of these, what we call bridges. I was watching another podcast with Coach K and JJ Reddick from Duke. And Coach yeah. K calls these bridges. But yeah. take us to one of earlier bridges and just give us a little context of yourself. Okay, yeah. And there have been several in my life. I've thought about that. In fact, when I've come to those crossroads, just to, and I'll come to your question, I, I learned a long time ago. I don't even know who the source is for the attribution, but it was said to me once before in those moments, you know, the purpose of all education is to do the things that we're supposed to do at the time that we have to do them, whether or not we want to do them. That's about overcoming that inertia. That is coming to that crossroads and realizing, okay, I need to make a decision here. And how much do I have in front of me to make the decision that I know I should do? And how much am I going to yield to the, the pushback, if you will? Okay, because that's to define who people ultimately become. It's those moments in time when you are willing to pivot and not pivot. And, and then there you go. So I think probably the most profound one that happened to me early on, and there have been several significant ones, quite honestly, was uh, my decision to leave college football coaching. Because I was 30 years old, had a master's degree. I was associate head football coach at the University of Hawaii. I was a defensive coordinator. I had a guy like Dom Capers on my staff who went on to NFL fame, having been a head coach and a few other really good coaches. We were winning in those days. Everything was right about that picture. It was an aspiration from the time that I realized uh, when I went to college what I thought I wanted to do because the game itself had such an impact on me. And I was doing really well with it. I was coaching all during my 20s. And I had, the only thing was wrong was I came out of a blue collar family. I was the first to go to college. Everybody had expectations that I would do that so I could make more money than they were earning in factories. And my father was a machinist and hardworking people. But I got into a business, everything was right about it, except it didn't pay any money. So in 1977, I had good position in coaching, was successful coaching, and I was making $15,000 a year. You know, and Larry Price, the head coach, was making $25,000 a year. In fact, after Larry left, which was subsequent to my leaving, they brought in Dick Tomey at $35,000 a year. I mentioned that because Nick Rolovich just left for $15 million a year. So maybe 40 years later, maybe if I were able to stay there, it would have been one thing. But that aside, that was a major decision for me because at 30 years old, I, I pivoted to reinvent myself in order to stay in Hawaii, not take a mainland coaching job. My then wife, 
was mother of my three children, ultimately, really had grown to dislike the demands of coaching. I had very idealistic notions in those days about not only keeping my marriage intact, but also about fatherhood and what to do in coaching was very demanding. So I took a job that I really knew nothing about to sell television time. And on the come, that Cease Heftel at the time said to me, Rick, if you want to work hard in this business in three years, you can make $50,000 a year. Working hard at the age of 30 in the life I was living wasn't even an issue. I thought, wow, it's the first time in all those years, since even when I got out of grad school, anybody talked to me about making what seemed to be serious money at the time. And I felt a real deep compulsion to go for it. So that was probably, and I have no regrets. I got a 43-year-old son who's done really well for himself and a four-year-old son who's done well, a 35-year-old daughter and my kids. But that changed my life, changed my destiny. Are you a non-accredited investor looking for opportunities to invest passively? How about a newer investor looking to get a bit of a track record and confidence from your skeptic spouse? And could you use the reinforcement of monthly checks paid like clockwork? The American Homeowner Preservation Fund, or AHP, is looking to bring new investors with them. I've been investing with them since 2016 and originally I used it as a means to pay for my regular expenses. I started with $60,000 as my initial investment and that paid for my car payment completely for me. AHP collaborates with existing homeowners to keep them in their homes by restructuring or selling the debts, unlike their competitors that just kick their homeowners out on the streets. It's a way to make great returns while feeling good about making a social impact. After investing myself in the fund, it was awesome when owner George Newberry saw the impact our simple passive cash flow monthly crew was making, approached me to become a spokesperson of the company. Invest as little as $100 by going to ahptitle.com. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please claim it at simplepassivecashflow.com slash AHP. And if you haven't done yet, join our private investor club for more insider access. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. So at the age of 35, you made that pivot. 30. So you're a little older to start your professional career at that point, right? Yeah, I spent my entire 20s coaching football, but here's the deal, that was a professional career. That's what I wanted to do, just a college football. Unlike today, the top 100 coaches at Division I schools all make $2 million or more a year. In those years, we just did it for the love of the game. And it wasn't all that long ago, it was four decades ago, a little bit more than that. But the bottom line is, I thought that was my profession. It was everything about it was professional. Certainly a lot of work and everything else, it just didn't pay anything, it didn't pay any money. Yeah, that's, that's a big transition. I'm moving from one track and then going back to the bottom and another. Yeah, Blaine, little did I know, though, that so much of what I learned, you know, look, I don't know how much you know about belief systems, but most experts will tell you, you lock them in pretty much in your 20s. And I had locked in a lot of my belief systems that were rooted in sports, team sports, coaching, a lot of other things that I learned along the way. And as it turned out, even though I got into a business I knew nothing about, I found out that a lot of that would be the foundation for me going forward on how I would lead. They say a lot of folks in military positions, high stress positions in their 20s translate well into a long career. Would you say it was more like just grit that you had developed or if you were to... I think grit is important. I think you have to have determination. People that I've known to succeed, look, you can get lucky in, in the financial markets. There's no question. And we've all seen that. But I don't denigrate anybody's success. But the path that I've chosen required a lot of grit, a lot of determination. And it never stopped. 
<laughs> so I, I will tell you, I've, I've been a guy who's been in one setting after another, turning around failing companies. And that's not some magic potion. That's a lot of hard work and uh, determination to succeed. So hard work and determination, you jumped on that highway for the next decade or so. Look, I jumped on that early on. I don't usually talk about myself, but in this kind of podcast, look, I went from being a grad assistant to associate coach in five years. I went from knowing nothing about television, and five years later, I replaced the guy that hired me. And in seven years, I became a general manager, and then I never looked back. And I've had title after title. I've been president of two national broadcast companies. I've run major market television stations, and I could talk a lot more about it. I've worked at CBS in New York, but I came home 18 years ago and did some things that nobody thought were even possible, starting first and foremost with taking over KHUN and KGNB, two failing stations. The financials were there, same ownership, never one guy before ever did that. Turned both of those around very quickly, both in revenue performances, rating success. We made KHO one, the number one Fox affiliate in the country, not once but twice, after 16 straight quarters of ownership of a downward spiral. Went on to stay with KGMB, took it to 2007, sold it, eight came, broke everybody, brought everybody to their knees. The week before Christmas 2008, we made this decision to try to build what ultimately became Hawaii News Now out of a broken economy pending FCC and DOJ approval. We merged three television stations together. We understood mobile technology and we created a 21st century multimedia company. Okay, so I will tell you that my whole life has been about that. It's been about starting at the bottom and working through or inheriting things that weren't working and making them work. Before I came back, I was president of a company of Telemundo called Telemundo, second largest Spanish language network owned by very sophisticated players. Sony was one and Liberty Media was another, and they're two private equity groups. They had just bought it for $500 million, saw a niche in the marketplace in Hispanic broadcast, saw the trends, understood what Latinos meant for the, in, in economic terms, invested heavily, lost $100 million the first year, in their very first year. Fired the two people, brought myself and a guy named Jim McNamara in, who was the CEO. He stayed in Miami. I stayed in L.A. I lived on airplanes for 45 weeks a year, and we sold that, that puppy for $2.7 billion three years later. And we would have we would have sold it for three and a half billion. Jeff Immelt was on record because we sold it to NBC of saying that was one of the things that came out of 9-11 was they saved nearly a billion dollars in the acquisition of Telemundo. And that's because they had private equity guys who wanted to sell and they put a deal on the table they couldn't refuse even though it was discounted. I've been involved in those kinds of things, Lane. Okay. So my life, and I, when I tell you I was living on planes 45 weeks, building a company, it's based in LA. We had a big operation up in the northern North Bay Area. I had three stations, one of which we bought on my watch in Dallas, big market. Just a transaction for that alone was a couple hundred million dollars. It was complicated, plus Houston, San Antonio, Miami. I was in and out of all the time where our headquarters were. San Juan, Puerto Rico was our largest operation. Our second largest operation was in New York City. And then Chicago, Denver, we were buying Phoenix when I left. And then when the deal was on, I was traveling Post 9-11, commercially, not privately, I would wake up in Miami, work in Chicago, sleep in Houston. Now, I'm just telling you that because that's the kind of seasoning I've had through my life. And I came home after all of that. At that point, I had 25 years in the business. Quite honestly, it wasn't about the job. I came back to it because I made a decision, which is something I learned my next pivot point in my 40s about alignment. After going through some pretty toxic experiences, and I decided for me, it was on a macro basis. My alignment was where I wanted to wake up in the morning. 
and Hawaii had been my touchstone. And I told the press when I came back in 2002, I told them that I said, I moved to the mainland in 89, but I never left Hawaii, which was true. Not only did I come back every year, but let me offer this insight. When I first left here, I went to Seattle, brought my three kids with me to run King Television, one of the most prestigious jobs in America. And they recruited me. I had been working for them for a couple of years. They could have hired anybody. So they offered me the job on my 43rd birthday. I was in Wyoming. I was doing a football game with Jim Leahy. And I got this up. They said, we've made a decision. They called me up to wish me happy birthday. They called me up to tell me they made a decision when I moved my family. And I really didn't want to move out of Hawaii at that point. I really didn't. I'd been here since 71. My kids were born here. They loved it here. I was doing well in television. I was proud. By that point, I transitioned over to KHNL. We're doing all UH sports. We're making a real contribution to the community. I was doing a lot of public speaking. I was enjoying just a sense of being a real integral part of this place through sports, which was my, interesting enough, in my origins of my coming here in 1965 as a player, living like that, it all felt good. But in that spirit of, of challenge, there was in that crossroads, like I said, I knew all roads led to that, that I had to do something. This is my second big pivot point that I really didn't want to do, but I knew that I had to do it. And I answered the bell to do that. So I didn't know they were going to sell the company. It brought me in to turn it around. Three years later, we did. They sold it. Next thing I know, I'm in CBS in New York. But during those three years, I'm in Seattle. Everybody always referred to me as the guy from Hawaii. And that always felt good. Then when I went to New York, it's, you know, Variety wrote this big article about I was a guy from Seattle. I'm going, no, I'm not the guy from Seattle. I'm the guy from Hawaii with this Boston accent. But I knew where my roots were. So it's been like that. Okay, it's not been an easy road. It's been really a hard road. So that's why you bring up the subject of grit. I take a lot of pride in that. I don't usually get to talk about that, but nothing's ever come easy. Nobody's ever handed me anything. Okay, anything. There, I also hear undertone. You know, things didn't go your way. They sold the station. They, they had to take everybody out. You were in that shuffle. They bring it out. They have you report to a suite at the Four Seasons. This was in Seattle. And it was speculated that all of us would be out in senior manager. They said, Rick, there's nothing personal. We just bought this company for nearly a billion dollars and we have our guy and we wish you well. Here's the HR people. We'll see you later. It wasn't even like getting fired. It was just part of the transition. It was for what? That was that, but that led me to CBS in New York. I, I was at a, a decision then. Do I stay out? Do I get out of broadcast? I just left Hawaii, went up to Seattle, spent three years in Seattle, turning that puppy around. I, I still have a handwritten note from the CEO. We brought that station back from a debt, debt spiral. That's why they hired me because of... They had done an employee survey and they realized they had a house of cards and they knew because it was company was founded by a woman named Dorothy Bullitt and she had passed away and uh, the previous year. And now it was time to look at the asset. They had an old board of directors. She was 96. In fact, she was recognized as one of the top 100 women of the 20th century. She was legendary. She was 56 years old when she started television in the Northwest. Legendary person. Anyway, I could go off and tell you stories like that, but all of those things were these Han Solo moments. I'm going through space, if you will, and life is happening, and I'm trying to be as good and as aggressive as I possibly can, not really knowing. Nobody offered me anything to guarantee, and then just dealing with stuff. So what? So in that regard, Lane, it wasn't until later, in my late 40s, I was down in Australia. We had just sold a company. I was president of a national broadcast company, 9TV, 27 Radio, I had partners. It was a two-year deal. It was supposed to be a five-year deal. Thank God it was only a two-year deal. Most toxic experience of my life. These were bad guys. I got, I got aligned with bad guys. And I'm down in Australia, and I'm trying to purge, if you will, and I'm thinking about what I'm going to do next. 
and brought a bunch of books. And at the time, Bill Gates wrote a book called The Road Ahead. And this is pre, now think about all that's happened. This was in the 90s. Think about all, that's already 30 years ago. Think about all that's happened since then. And it was a real prophetic publication. And he was talking about, he was talking about the movie, The Graduate. And he, met, he referenced it in the context that it was a great movie. You're probably too young to remember Dustin Hoffman. And there was a, was a word in there. There was an experience in there, which Hal Holbrook is advising this young man. And he tells him the word is plastics, Benjamin. It became such a colloquial expression from this one movie line about plastics. Like what you want to do in your life, go on to plastics. And Gates was saying in the book, if they wrote, if they redid that movie today, the, the word would be, you know, communications. He was talking about that. He said it would be, that's the word. And I was in one of those sort of Jungian moments, maybe a little bit like this, and thinking, gee, what did I just learn? I just went through two years of a really toxic experience with people, I'm not going to mention anybody's name, were flat out evil. These guys were bad guys. I couldn't wait to get away from them. And, and the sale of the company allowed me to do that. I was, I'd never been in that experience before. And I thought to myself, you know what? Alignment. I, I slipped into that. I let them buy me into that job. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to pick my alignments from this point forward because I was evaluating my life at that point and thinking what worked, what didn't work, and why. And when I got out of sync, it was with, because of the wrong alignments. And ever since then, I've been very selfish. So when I tell you my decision to come back to Hawaii post the sale of Telemundo, which was influenced also in my life experiences of 9-11. 9-11 impacted me in a big way. My dad died that year, but it also impacted me. I was up close to that, but it also just resonated with me about life, a lot of circumstances. And so I was single. My kids were grown, uh, and I could make a decision for myself. And so I, I chose my alignment was I wanted to come back and live here. I wanted to come back here and serve this place for all the experiences I had gained over those 13 years in broadcast in my career. And I came back to a fertile setting and having KH1 and KGMB. But it was really about this place. It was really about coming back to Hawaii, which is important because that decision on that premise 18 years ago was the exact thing that hit me a year ago when I made this decision to run for mayor. Makes you think of a couple of things. When people invest a lot of money in these real estate or whatever they're investing in, you get a point to you're financially free. And really the freedom is doing what you want, where you want, with more importantly, who you want and also when you want. <laughs> But um, also there, came back home and a big issue that a lot of people realize is a lot of the highest talent leaves Hawaii in the brain drain. They go to the mainland for much higher paid jobs. And when I came back home, I had to take a 30% pay cut. I'm like, how can anybody survive at home? But you're obviously in a position where you could and make an impact. So, yeah, take us back to the opportunity that was presented to you to come back. What did you think at the time of the impact that you could make? So full disclosure, 25 years in the business, I just led that life that I told you, turning Telemundo around. I had run major market stations while I was on the mail, including working at the network. I was in a lot of cities, whatever. I had, I decided that, you know, that was not a sustainable model because I felt like I was, for me, I was not connected to anything, even though we're having some big success and and all that stuff that happens in that kind of mode. But I actually wanted to come back and be the athletic director at the University of Hawaii. That was the year that Evan DeBell announced uh, that he, uh, that well, start off with Hugh Yoshida saying he was going to retire in 2002. So anyway, we sold Telemundo. We, we made the announcement on October 11th, one month to the day, 2001, on NBC. And then I was given the mandate as president of the company to get the deal closed by the end of 2002. And every day earlier would be accretive to GE. 
So there was a lot of pressure. And uh, because they were acquiring partner, that, that's who owned NBC at the time. So that's when I was living on airplanes and doing the things I was telling you, which is like crazy life. And that was a lot. It was my cup runneth over. I, I got my fill of conference rooms and all the other things you can get through. So I wanted to come back. I thought, okay, this is a great thing. And she is retiring and Dobell is the president of the University of Hawaii. And he's making these noises about he's going to bring in this great athletic director and He's saying all the things that really spoke to me. In fact, I was hearing from everybody in town. Ricky's talking about you. He wanted a business guy with media background who had connections to Hawaii, <laughs> all this stuff. And I'm thinking, that's me. He's talking to me. I couldn't, even get a, I couldn't even get a cup of coffee with this guy. He already knew they were going to hire him in Frazier. So I backed into the job because, again, it wasn't about the money or even the positions. Everybody that I left at that time, given the success we had, thought I was absolutely crazy to leave the fast lane, okay? Because I gained a lot of recognition. I was on the front cover of magazines and crap like that. And I could have stayed on the mainland. I came back to my, to my wanting, the alignment of my wanting to live here. And it wasn't, I could be cavalier about money. I still had bills to pay. And you know what? You could make some money, but let me tell you, the first time you see the government take half of it, it's pretty eye-opening. The numbers look a lot different, okay? And the long and the short of it is I, I, I came back because I wanted to make a difference in this community. And I really felt that circumstance was not the one that I initially wanted. I wanted to be the AD at the University of Hawaii. And I thought back to my roots, but I'd learned enough about television. And this was enough of a challenge because of the unprecedented nature and the fact that the businesses were failing under this ownership. I, I did it for that. I did it to come back and try to apply everything and anything I knew about improving local television. You know, I started in 1977, KGMB was a dominant station, but I can tell you in those years, it used to be a one-week delay programming or whatever, and technically there wasn't that kind of investment. And I can remember early on, once I started understanding the business, people always say things like, how come local TV is so junk? We go to the mainland, it's so much better, that kind of thing. From that to in this last go-around, not just on all the awards we won and everything, I can tell you, Hawaii News Now is one of the most highly regarded, you know, we're a statewide television market and one of the more highly regarded broadcast. Uh, entities, even Will and Gray. Gray bought us a year ago. They had 100 stations. They bought 63 in Raycom. We merged into a publicly traded company of 163 stations. And Hawaii News Now went right to the top of that. So, uh, you know, that to me, that is a contribution to Hawaii. Just like in 84, we started doing UH Sports as a contribution to Hawaii. That was a vision that we understood that Hawaii Sports, they went from the northern tip of Kauai to the southern tip of Hawaii Island and everywhere in between. And I understood the feeling and the pride of that. And what's what we began to do on a pretty good basis. So I, I came back to serve at that point. Okay. And it's sort of a place that I had loved that I always felt strongly connected to. And that began, I didn't know what was going to, I didn't know what was going to happen going forward. And I never had a crystal ball. To me, it's never been about trying to predict the future. It's about how you create it. And so over the course of 18 years, there was one thing after another. I, we, we created some great success. So, I mean, here in the broadcast business, but beyond that, for the people, it wasn't about, I heard Alma Media the other day make a comment about making profits for mainland companies. For me, it was first and foremost always about the people creating a great place to work. Hawaii News Now is the only media company that voted best places to work for five years in a row. I didn't do it in the last year because we were going through a sale. And I waited five years before I tested that. And that has to be voted on by 80% of your employees. And quite honestly, in news organizations, 
People are pretty cynical. They don't drink the Kool-Aid. Yet we were by our employees. They loved working there. And I brought back a number of people, Wayne. I brought back the Lane Kawokas. That's who I brought back. I mean, I'll give you a bunch of them that I hired who were succeeding on the mainland, created something they could felt they could take their career and bring it back here. Even to the extent that I wasn't able to pay them quite what they were making on the mainland, but they preferred to be home with family and actualizing their careers. I can give you a bunch of names there. And I'm really proud of that. And they've all evolved. To me, it was that even, and I have to be careful here because I have some really great union endorsements. My folks decertified. They voted out the union. That doesn't even happen in this town because of the belief in management. So we made a great place to work in which we inspired people to do their best. And I used to joke and I'd say the same thing to you. As I've gotten older, everybody looks younger. Even though you've already, I'm sure, I don't know much about you, have accomplished a great deal, your best is in front of you. But you need to be in a situation where it's not just you alone doing that necessarily. You're going to need, at least in people who work in organizational settings, but in the kind of dynamics I was in with people who wanted to belong to an organization, because let's face it, if you're news or even sales or whatever, or marketing, I mean, that's the setting. That's the kinds of people who come into it. We made it a great place to work, but I always challenged everybody to say, your best is still in front of you. The way we did that was I pushed innovation all the time on new ideas, more than I did. Improvement was just a basic expectation. We're going to get better. We have metrics, but no, we're the new ideas. What are we doing? It's different and better. And so people, when you talk about making work fun, get off on that kind of stuff. In the the log of yesterday, we're in there and trying to create a tomorrow. So right from the beginning, when I stepped in, it's almost as interesting it was 10 years ago, because at that point I said, we're in the first year of the second decade this is 2012. We started on October 26, 2009. We're in the first year of the second decade of the 21st century. And look what's going on in broadcast media. And what are we going to do? And we jumped all over mobile technology. We really understood. I'm on a podcast again. We understood all that stuff. And we, we made it happen. It was a contribution to why. It was precisely why I came home. The successes earlier on the KHON and KGMB and those recognitions, that was all one thing. This was a significant change in the trajectory of local media in Hawaii, and we were able to accomplish that. If you can illustrate the differences between the Telemundo years and the Hawaii years, it seemed like in the Hawaii years you had more of a, like an impact where the Telemundo years you're more of a in within the operations. I got hired initially with eight stations. Three of them were negative EBITDA. Three years later, we had 11 stations. We tripled the EBITDA of the whole company. We made strategic acquisitions. And not only that, we created a presence on a national landscape. When I started, the consumer buying index was $80 billion in the Hispanic market. When I left three years later, it was $650 billion with a trajectory to hit a trillion dollars. This was a high stakes game. And it, had that, it hit that trajectory. It hit that point a couple of years after I left. This was understanding the moment in time and how to capitalize on it. But that was just a lot of personnel work, to be honest with you, Lane. That was a lot of people picking. I had to put general managers in place and provide the right kind of leader in a, in a tough place because, first of all, the Hispanic market had one big giant gorilla, this company called Univision, and they were very territorial. And they made it very clear as soon as we began to make some inroads, if you leave here to go work at Delamundo, you'll never come back here. They drew some hard lines in the sand. And so I found myself hiring general managers, like what I've been for a lot of years, had 10 of them, they were great. I think eight of them had never been GM and just picking people and who understood what was at stake, who had capabilities and skill sets and whatever. So that was different, that was different, but that's been the same 
here. When I came back, let me tell you a story. Okay, so KGMB and KGM were both owned by the same company, MS Communications. And I knew Jeff Smyon in my days from Seattle because he owned the Seattle Mariners. And I was trying to work a deal out for a 5% equity of his club. I'd buy a second television station and pay him the broadcast rights, provided he gave us the equity. I could never make that deal happen, but I got to know him, okay? So I come back and I look at the, I look at Jeff, he's a big radio guy, and KHON, they had 16 straight quarters of downward ratings in revenue. 16, 16 quarters, less and less and less. In that process, they had bought KGMB through the acquisition of Lee Enterprises, had not invested heavily in it, and was really downtrodden. And they had that for two years. So they had two stations in Hawaii. They've been operating on a temporary grant from the FCC that allowed them to maintain a duopoly, even though the FCC wanted them ultimately to divest because it was a rule violation. But nonetheless, they had it. And they basically said, what do we do? KGMB, to give you perspective, when I walked out in 1984 to go start what was then Kiko, which became KHNL, we were doing just under 20 million a year. When I walked in 2002, she was doing under 10 million a year. So you can imagine from 84 to 2002, less than $10 million gross, what I walked into, okay? In Hawaii, over that course of time. That's how broken the place was. So we, so I asked to be with the management team of both. They had never done it. There, were, there was like resentment. KGMB was an original building in, over in K, on Kapilani Boulevard. And on P. Koi Street was all this brand new, glitzy KHON. And it was like bad blood because broadcasters compete against each other. And it was like the haves and the have-nots. It was a lot of bitterness. So I wanted to look at the managers. So I, I asked for all the managers to come. Day one, before I had any of them in the station, I met, had a meeting in the conference room with the Elite Tower at the Hilton Wine Village. And I told them to bring their number twos and number threes if they had it. I wanted, to, I wanted everybody to bring whoever it was that was in charge of stuff, okay? okay? So sure enough, about 35 or so, I never really counted the exact number, showed up. And the tension in the room was palpable. You could feel it. And I walked in and I pretty much laid out what it was about. I want to tell them, you know, because here's the deal. The night before, I'm watching Leslie Wilcox and Ron Mizutani on television. I'm sitting in a hotel room and I'm watching it. And, and they said goodbye that day. They fired their general manager and they started speculating about me. Rick Blanchard, he's come back to Hawaii. And he's going to run two stations at the same time. I'm, I'm sitting in a hotel room listening to them speculate about my arrival, okay? Meanwhile, I've got this meeting set up the very next morning for all the managers, and they're like shaking their heads. And I've known Ronald Leslie, like, this is impossible. This can't happen. What's going on here? And they had people crying over the guy they just fired and stuff. It was like, so I go in that room and I tell them pretty much, this is the way it's going to be. I just want to make it really clear to you that I haven't come back home to retire. Some of you may think that because it was a lot of stuff talked about in the press, just coming off with incredible success. But I came back home because of my love and passion for this place and to make a difference. So lest you think I'm going to give you a rah-rah talk today about you're going to run harder, jump higher, there's a new sheriff in town, that's not the case. I'm here to serve notice on what I believe. And that is the reason why our stations are not going to be performing is it's lacked the leadership. Okay? So I'm going to challenge all of you. I'm going to tell you right now, the people who are most at risk are the men and women in this room because that's what I'm going to look at first. If we expect to inspire performance, I want to look at who's leading, okay? Because I don't know how any of you got your jobs. I know that these stations are both dysfunctional. They've been dysfunctional for quite some time. So all I can do without casting aspersions on anybody is simply tell you, to me, that's a leadership challenge. 
So my first job is not about evaluating everybody else. It's going to be to evaluate you and whether or not you should be in that job. Show me what you have. I want to see it up close and personal. I'm going to get to know you. I want to watch what you do. I want to see how people respond to you. So it was with that understanding that I had a leadership challenge on my hands, predetermined, admittedly, but predicated on poor performance. Okay. But at the same time, so I'll be fair, I just started to tell you, probably at the end of the year, there were five people left from that group. Okay. And some of the people that we changed were internal promotions, a number of them, good people there. And that just speaks to how important leadership is. Who's leading? And the decision about who's leading is really important. And that can make a huge difference. And that, quite honestly, is why I chose to run for mayor, made that decision. In a time in my life when I could have said, I just had a hell of a career. What am I doing? And I've told people repeatedly, I made this with my heart. Maybe that's the wrong place to point to, but it certainly wasn't with my brain. I was driven by this as a referendum for leadership because of what's at stake. And this was pre So I made that decision based on love of place, not very much different than the decision I made in 2002, 18 years ago, to come back here and make a contribution to Hawaii, all right, for the standpoint of where TV was at with these properties, or for that matter, when I took over a broken television station in 1984, and what we then did with that, with UH Sports and how we served. For that matter, even when I got into KGMB and all the things we did, or the years when I came over here, I announced I was running for mayor at the old stadium park. And the reason why I did it, because I'm really a sentimental guy, because that was the place in 1965 that I first saw the pride of Hawaii's local people. Okay? That's the first time I saw it. It's also the same setting was the first time I learned how to fight for Hawaii. And I wanted to announce my mayoral candidacy in that setting because it brought me all the way back to Hawaii in a very different time in 1965. But my life experiences over the course of that time and what I've tried to do here have all been to the good. And now this last chapter, this again was pre-COVID, which as I said earlier, is going to redefine my entire time as mayor. Okay. But this was all about that. This is all about making a difference in a place you live, feeling connected to it. And then quite honestly, who's going to help run this place? I've made it, I've made it clear to everybody that I'm not doing this alone. I'm asking for the responsibility and the accountability. But I've said repeatedly, I'm going to try to bring in the best minds I can possibly get, people who are smart thinkers, smart doers, and who also want to be held accountable. Because we're in a time right now that we've never seen before. This is the most difficult setting any mayor has ever walked into. And I've been told that daily by a lot of people. I realize what's at stake. It's not just because of the dysfunction with heart and the mayor and what's happening with the rail, or for that matter, anything else that you want to cite. We've got a lot of issues here. If you were to categorize when you made that decision to go for mayor, was it more of a, you're compelled by, you're optimistic what kind of impact you're able to make with the, the position, or was it more you're frustrated at what's happening out there? And if so, what specifically frustrated yeah, you? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, you know, it was probably neither in a sense. This was not really ego-driven. I mean, quite honestly, when you make a decision of this consequence, it really is a certain amount of trepidation. But you feel you're being drawn to it. There's a sense of responsibility that you almost can't deny and you don't want to turn your back on it. Like I said earlier, it was sort of a referendum for leadership. So if I live here and I say I love it here, and I love its people, and I love where I've been and my life has been here, then you come to a moment in time like that that's never just one thing. You feel compelled. I mean, I could have turned my back on it easily, but I just, for some reason, and I was like, there were people whispering in my ear, Rick, you got to do this. What, le- what more do you have left to, in television? You got a lot of gas in your tank. 
you, you need to, you need, you need, we need you to do this. And so since that time, that's been gratifying because look, when we announced, I had no idea how I was going to do. Not even how many people were going to run. At one point, we had 15 people running for mayor. And we had three experienced politicians running. There was a lot of unknowns and uncertainties here. There was no guarantees. But now I find myself not only having one in the primary, but as you may or may not be aware, decidedly ahead, two weeks from today is election day, in the polls. We'll do everything we possibly can to make sure that we, we meet that and, and then some. And so I have a sense of destiny about this, Lane. I really do. All roads have led to this. And all I can possibly do from this point forward in getting elected is to apply everything in my life that I've learned, my love of this place, the people that I know. Look, and, and the challenge of all the unknowns, I've said repeatedly, this is going to take collaboration at the state level. It's going to take collaboration with the federal government. And it's going to take collaboration with the private sector in ways that perhaps hadn't even happened before from the standpoint of the mayor of the city and county of Honolulu. And, and I intend to, because we're going to need a lot of help and a lot of things. We're going to go right back to what I talked to you earlier about innovation. We need some new ideas. There is nothing about the situation I'm walking into that says perpetuate the status quo. Nothing. Okay. Now, if we see things that are working really well, I don't have that kind of ego. I'm not that person. That's one of the things that really help facilitate turnarounds. You don't walk in there, which is what's such a classic mistake when you take over in your number one job and feel like, okay, I'm here. It's my signature. We have to reinvent something. No, I'm going to look for everything that we're doing well and capitalize on that and then stop the things that we're not doing well and figure out how we can do it better. That's how you operate in turnarounds. When you jump into the position, what is something that based on your experience, so with, with your skill sets and what you've learned throughout the years, what specifically made you for this position or speaking on any issue out there that, that you're the guy exactly for that issue? Look, you asked me earlier about grit. For some reason, I'm wired the way I'm wired. My whole life, I've just you know been like that. I think it's also, I really, I really do. I'm an old team guy. I'm rooted in a team. I love building team around, teams, people around, watching people thrive and being a facilitator in that. I, I'm looking at this job as daunting lane as it feels right now, given the circumstances. And believe me, there's good reason to say that. It's a very exciting opportunity right now. Leadership is situational. And there's some real silver linings in this. I've talked openly about it. And we're going to try to see the best we can do. I think the landscape is fertile right now for us to do some things that maybe heretofore you couldn't in the, for the, in the sake of the greater good. And the challenges are significant. And so I'm just drawn to that kind of thing. It's, it's Why do people climb things like Mount Everest? I'm going to go through all this stuff, the crazy things people do. It's just something in you. And I've been I've just felt this is in me to do. So we'll wrap up here with the Tony Robbins question. Break down a couple of things for us. So first, what is a, some kind of a secret or hack or any kind of ritual that you do that led to you being a high performer, right? High output, basically a science achievement. And secondly, what is your secret or hack for the art of fulfillment? What keeps you motivated, keeps you going? Well, I've never taken myself too seriously. I want to be really candid. I would tell you, I've been blessed, I think, with a certain sense of humility and recognizing my own limitations and always trying to work over that. I, I, I learned this. You're going to crack up since you brought up Tony Robbins. Let me bring up Barbara Walters. Okay. I'm watching. This is years ago. Barbara Walters is doing her 25th anniversary show every year for 25 years. Once a year, she interviewed four people. They were the world's most famous people from kings to movie stars, celebrities, athletes, business tycoons. And so now it's in her 25th and they're doing a special anniversary show and she's being questioned about, okay, 25 years have gone and you've had the privilege of interviewing 
100 of the world's most fascinating, successful, not successful, Anwar Sadat events, people like that. What were the common denominators? You saw, you saw them up close in person. She said, I remember at the time, I was getting dressed in a hotel room. She said, tell you, there was, there was two things that really popped out. One, they understood their work and they took it most seriously. But secondly, they didn't take themselves very seriously. They understood who they were. They're human foibles, if you will. I look at my life like that. I know the impact I can have in what I do professionally, but I also understand I'm an imperfect person in many ways. What is your secret or hack for the art of fulfillment or any other kind of mindset tricks that you use to keep yourself going? Well, I think you have to stay positive. From a leadership standpoint, you have to be positive, okay? And you have to understand that when you're a leader, you have to have broad shoulders. I'm being tested right now in this negative campaign stuff that's going on. You have to have broad shoulders. And I think people look at that and look for you to fulfill that expectation. So consistency is really important. Having integrity. Well, we appreciate your time, Rick. If people want to learn more about your campaign, you want to drop your URL, your website for folks. We have a website and everybody around me laughs all the time. It's rickblangiardiformayor.com. I always have to think about it because sometimes I say friends, it's rickblangiardiformayor.com. I've enjoyed this. I know we didn't go through all your questions. But I thank you for allowing me the opportunity, I think, because all of this was designed, I think, in some ways to showcase a little bit of how I tick inside. And so I chose to articulate it that way. And thank you for allowing me to do that. Yeah, yeah. We never know what's going to happen. People ask, once you get into a deal, what are you going to do when this happens or that happens? We don't know if that's going to happen. So let's just talk about where we are between the two years right now. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.